The world is very strange. It's beautiful and it's ugly. Wonderfully amazing, but also ominously weird. And our own personal human existence can be ecstasy, but also agony. Any thinking person must struggle at times with the vast contradictions that come from living on this planet. Something is obviously terribly wrong here. We spend a lot of mental energy keeping out the intruding awareness that this conflict that surrounds us doesn't make any sense. I mean, what's the reason for it? Why, why is it at times so irrational? What fuels the rage, the self-destructive insanity, the mind-numbing cruelty? It was hard enough to keep these questions out of our consciousness in decades past, but now it's nearly impossible not to think of it often. Every day it seems to intrude upon us even, even more than it used to. That this world, with its various beauties and treasures, is under some kind of terrible siege. We are at war, both within each soul and around us all. And there's a sense of an impending, imposing menace. Even the most jaded and seemingly indifferent bystander is beginning to say, something's got to give. This can't go on like it is. Also, even skeptics, those who reject any supernatural belief, at times will say something like, this is just not natural. It's no there's no human explanation. Now, what would cause them to say this? I, I might offer a, a few of the most vivid images to our minds, but I won't do that. Several reasons why I won't do that. First, I would feel I was doing you wrong by placing some horrors in your imagination that wouldn't be there if I didn't. You sadly know them already unless you live under a rock somewhere. Second, I would be aware that no matter how bad my descriptions might be, they would simply not be enough numerically to make the point accurately. They would only be a tiny drop in a hellishly large sea of tragedy. And third, giving such examples cannot ever communicate the real depth of evil that is this world. Not just referring to the huge uncountable number of them, but the horrendousness of them. The evil is beyond imagining. In fact, if we could imagine how horrible evil fully is, we would not be able to stay mentally stable. One of the tragedies of misusing language is that we ruin words if we use them wrongly, and the result of that is to bankrupt language. We will no longer have the right word for the right thing. Awesome is an example we have cited before. When we refer to a hamburger or a sports car as awesome, we then have no longer a word left to refer to something that is truly awesome, for there are very few things that are. We have also done that with words like horrible, terrible, and now horrendous, the word we turned to after we had bankrupted horrible and terrible. That word is slowly becoming void of power to express what we really are trying to say. The truth is, neither horrible or terrible or even horrendous or any other words in any language can supply what is needed to communicate what I'm trying to describe here. The same struggle applies when we try to understand what happened to Jesus in the garden. It was there that he took upon himself the horrible, the terrible, the horrendous, the unspeakable evil of the universe, but I'm getting ahead of my message. When it comes to evil at its worst, our ability to hold it off from our minds really is a gift of mercy. Yet we must not hide 
from at least what it is I'm trying to say here now. Our only alternative, which is no alternative, is to cover our eyes and ears and say, I don't want to even know. I don't want to even see. I can't even bear to hear what little you're saying right now. I don't want to come out of my own private happy place and be traumatized by being made aware of horrendous evil. After all, there is nothing I can do about it anyway. Well, there's truly nothing we can do about ultimate evil. The wonderful news is that it has already been done, and by the only one who could have done it. And he did everything that was needed. And because of what he has done, there is something we can do in response to present evil. And though the scriptures warn us not to even speak of those things done in the dark, and we are told to keep our minds focused on whatever is good and right and just and pure, we do so not by refusing to face evil realities, but with a vision of Christ's foot on the serpent's head, We do not deny the existence of the serpent, but we can endure his horrible face if we have a clear picture of the nail-scarred foot that crushes it. I remember when Dr. James Dobson was asked back in 1987 to chair the research committee uncovering the effects of pornography on America and report back to Congress He displayed on a large screen the image of a small boy who had been murdered by a sadistic, sexually mad porn user. The response of the congressional body was not to tear their clothes in sorrow and take legal action to circumvent more such evil, and it certainly was not to cry out to God in repentance for becoming a nation so debauched that we could produce such a thing. No, their response was to become incensed that their dignified halls had been desecrated by Dobson's report. I'm not so sure that they were impotently insulted because they were so naive or they were determinately resistant to Dr. Dobson's warnings because so many of them were already poisoned in their own souls by the venom. But as you can see, since the evil was displayed there that day, they refused to address that issue, and it has grown exponentially. We must take action against evil when we are and where we are confronted with it. Now, I know we've said it over and over, haven't we? We cannot take on the whole war. We cannot observe firsthand all evils in the world. We can't bear it, but neither should we become like those cowardly and maybe corrupt Congress members either. We are the ecclesia of God, the assembly of God's governing body in the earth, a kingdom of priests. We are the law-enforcing rulers who should be fully awake and aware so that we take action in prayer to enforce kingdom rules against evil. In order to do just that, we need to understand the reason the earth is like it is and what God has done to confront that war and how we are to engage it. It will also help us to understand how all this is going to finally come to a finish. So in the time that we have left, let's try to unpack these issues and at least introduce these truths to our thinking. Why is the earth like it is. We don't know the full story of the origin of evil. More has been written on that question in philosophy, religion, and psychology than any other subject. What we do know is that God is not the originator of evil, for evil is not a thing in the sense that evil has being that was set in motion by a creator. As St. Augustine has rightly said, Evil is the negation of goodness, a parasite. It has no being of its own and must therefore feed off of what is created. 
It's like the hole in a donut, so to speak. It is nothing. Yet, it is. Yet, it has existence only in its relationship to a formed substance that does have existence. The substance can exist apart from the whole, but the whole cannot not exist apart from the donut. The substance can exist, but the whole has no existence of its own. But the one who made the donut was not setting out to create a donut hole. That was an uncreated side effect of the formation of the donut. Now, some might say that donuts are evil in themselves. That's a whole other subject, I guess. But as we will see over and over in this examination of evil, all analogies break down but are still illustrative. God is not at the mercy of side effects. God is not taken by surprise at the emerging of that which is non-being. But at this point, we stand on the edge of more than we can know. God is all good and is not the source of evil under any circumstances. We know the devil is responsible for the spread of evil. That is, if we believe the testimony of Scripture and the words of the Lord Jesus himself. But we don't know much beyond that. Our planet has become the focal point of some sort of battle between light and dark. The planet looks like a war zone because it is a war zone. When people were multiplying on the face of the earth, God divided the nations. You can read about that in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. Then he set over the nations mighty ruling angelic powers to guide them. You read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. By the way, if you're using a King James Version or various other versions, it will say that God divided the nations according to the sons of Israel or the children of Israel. That's not what the Hebrew text says. It says he divided the nations according to the sons of God. The idea here clearly is that the nations were divided and to be ruled over by beings that are referred to as the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, which are uh, angelic, divine, godlike beings. We may have more to say about that later, but that's an irrefutable fact of Scripture that is amazingly ignored by many uh, church people or don't even know such such a, a subject can be found in Scripture, although it's it's got numerous sightings. Instead of filling the earth and cultivating it, the people gathered around the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, sought to establish an earthly kingdom founded on occultism, secularism, humanism, and one-worldism. They turned from the worship of Yahweh and made covenants with these ruling angelic beings who accepted their worship and proclaimed themselves as little gods. Psalm 82 gives us a picture of God's rebuke of these angels. Uh, Again, something that we won't take the time here to look at, but I hope you'll study on your own. Uh, It's not referring to human judges. It's obviously referring to these same beings. As judgment, God gave the nations over to these rebellious beings who developed dark occult forms of worship and ruled the people with evil. God turned to one small human being named Aram and established a covenant relationship with him and his descendants. God gave the nations over to their various false gods. But God called himself the God of Abraham. Abraham's children became Israel, God's chosen people. 
Yet he chose them not so that eventually they would be a blessing only for themselves, but that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. We are at war with those rebellious forces who sought to pull human worship to themselves. They don't want to give it up. Daniel chapter 10 is a good place for you to see this in action. Now, what has God done to confront this evil? He established his relationship with Israel so that he would have a relationship with them. In other words, the first thing he did was to build a relationship with the people rather than merely ruling over them as a distant potentate deity. He established his relationship with them so that there might be human representative nation on the earth that would demonstrate his goodness and wisdom in the earth. But then, more than that, so that there would be a nation through whom God himself would descend into the human race to become one of us. For God wanted all nations in relationship to himself, not just Israel. So when God in the flesh came, everywhere he went, he encountered the kingdom of evil, and he destroyed it. He healed the sick, he cast out demons, he broke the back of poverty, he made out of control weather behave, the powers in control of evil on the earthly level with the agreement of slavish obedience of human forces such as Rome and the religious forces of the Jewish rulers arranged to kill him. And they did. But the scriptures tell us that had the rulers of this age known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Verse 8, this is obviously not referring to the fact that if the Romans or the Jewish leaders had realized what they were doing, they would not have followed through with it. No, this is speaking about the fact that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ would be the destruction of the principalities and powers, authority over the earth. By arranging his death, they destroyed themselves. In illegally killing him, they committed suicide. When he cried from the cross, it is finished, he was saying far more than that the event was complete. He was pronouncing the end of the kingdom of darkness. For from that moment, it was finished. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 since the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same, so that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to its bondage. The word destroy here does not mean to obliterate out of existence, but to deprive of power. His shed blood covered the sins of all mankind and made it possible for all humans to be free of the power of death. Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, Jesus says, I am he who lives, who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys to death and hell. So, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 through 17 that Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God the origin and heir of all creation. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things are held together. Now, 
Here's a side note, but maybe a very important side note. He created them, the principalities and powers. Their existence depends on his say-so. He not only initiated their coming into being, but it is only by his will and power that they have continued to exist. This is a very inadequate but maybe helpful image. But think of a picture drawn on a paper uh, fighting against the pencil that drew it and the paper it exists upon. Acts 17, which I referred to previously. In him we and they live and move and have their very being. So it's a great unimaginable mercy that allows them to go on being when he could snuff them out in a moment. What's he doing to allow this? What what is he trying to accomplish? Maybe besides just showing mercy, God has a design in mind in this entire process by which he is giving freedom for evil to do its worst and completely exhaust its existence so that the eventual universe will be completely and forever free of evil ever being able to rise again. Now, he's not working evil so that good might come out of it. That's different, and that's not what I'm saying. He is, though, setting a trap for evil that will ultimately undo it forever. In his death on the cross, he takes all evil into himself, and in his resurrection, he proves he is going to be able to and willing to and intending to put right every wrong that has ever been perpetrated. So in Colossians, uh, or Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, uh, and then also in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, reference is made to the annihilation of evil. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, he took them away, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled, rendered powerless principalities and powers, he made a spectacle of them openly, triumphing over them in himself on the cross. Now when it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, that he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Some people have misunderstood that, understandably, to think that somehow, in a way that we don't understand, Satan wielded the power of death and had some kind of supernatural authority over death, or somehow we get the idea in our mind that he is the, he is the, the, the source of, and energy behind death. But that's really not what these verses are speaking of. Both Colossians 2.15 and Hebrews 2.14 and 15 tells us that the dark powers over the nations who are responsible for the injustice and the agony of the whole earth were being rendered powerless by Jesus in his cross. And what is the power that renders death uh, all over the earth. Well, it's the power of the law. The strength of sin is death, and the strength of, of sin is the law, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. So how could this, the power of darkness wield the good law of God. He, Paul tells us in Romans that the law is good and right and just. There's nothing wrong with the Torah of God. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. But the picture is probably best illustrated by a character in the novel Les Miserables, which I've referred to before, that of Javert. Javert, the policeman who is on the trail of 
Jean Valjean, who he considers a hopeless, evil uh, convict for whom there is no forgiveness and no redemption. Uh, what Javert does is legally right, but it's morally and spiritually wrong. The law of God is legally right, but the law doesn't have the power to save. And the heart of God is to save. So this is too large a subject to get into here in great detail, but I hope the illustration of Javert will at least get a picture in our minds of a, a, a being who is walking around. You know, we picture the devil with horns and a pitchfork, but a more accurate picture would be of him as uh, uh, having a clerical collar and carrying a Bible. Thank God for the Bible. I love the Bible. But the Bible has more to talk to me about than Torah. It has more to talk to me about than law. Jesus is the fullness of Torah, and there is much more to Torah than just rules and regulations and penalties for breaking those rules and regulations. But they are realities that have to be reckoned with and lest you get the idea that God is under the authority of the Torah and must obey it, let me make clear the Torah is simply the expression of God's moral verdict against evil. But there is a greater law, what C.S. Lewis calls in the Chronicles of Narnia, a deeper magic. It was the white witch who wanted to wield the, the law of sin and death but Romans chapter 8 says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the full Torah of God, is superseding the law of sin and death. Javert only wants to wield the law of sin and death. So he pursues Jean Valjean with the intention of putting him back under the cruel lash of the legalistic system of the prisons regardless of the transformation that's taken place in his life. So Jesus has conquered and destroyed the powers of death wielded by the principalities and powers. Well, then why do we still read scriptures like the following, which most of you could quote? Ephesians 6 verse 12, We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against principalities and powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Or 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of people who don't see the gospel. Or 1 Peter 5, the devil is like a roaring lion, lion prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. If the power of darkness has been destroyed at Calvary, why is he still running loose? And why is darkness seemingly increasing? And why is tragedy worse than ever before in the history of man? Well, let's try to answer that. It's logical to want the story of redemption to be complete with the great happy ending of the resurrection. And it is complete in that when Jesus rose from the dead, as far as he and the universe are concerned, there is nothing else to be done. It is finished. The moment Jesus stepped out of the tomb, was the end of this age and the inauguration of the event that would make eventually all things new. But we're the product of a culture of TV and movies with neatly tied up happy endings. The story unfolds, the bad is defeated, the good wins, and the end appears on the screen. But reality is more complex than that. 
the best example is to illustrate this um, by referring to a, a, a concept that was originally coined by theologian Oscar Coleman in 1964. He said that at the close of World War II, D-Day was the decisive event that ended the war in Europe. There was no way the Nazis could recover from the devastating victory brought on by the invasion of the Allies. But the actual end of the war was not officially until VE Day. In the nearly 11 months that unfolded, there were still many casualties and conflicts as the defeated Nazi army hopelessly continued to fight on. Now, like all analogies, as we've said previously, this one is not complete. But it does help illustrate how a final decisive event can determine the eventual outcome of an ongoing but soon-to-end story. The blow dealt to the Nazis on D-Day meant that the war was over as far as who wins is concerned. So it is with the cross. What happened at the cross has determined the end of the story. During the time between the cross and the final consummation of this age, there are still conflicts and casualties. But the difference in this story is that every event, casualty, and injustice will be put right at the consummation of this age. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will be overlooked. In the meantime, how are we to carry on in this between times period between our D-Day of Calvary and the VE day at the end of the age. How are we to engage evil? Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 is a packed verse full of important answers to this question. Where Paul says, now, in this in-between time between the cross and the resurrection of the dead and the consummation of the age, between the D-Day of Calvary and the V-E Day of the return of the King. Now, it is the task of the church to teach the principalities and powers in the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of God that is demonstrated through the church. Did you get that? The all-encompassing power of the cross. This is why we constantly point you back to the cross. Listen to these verses. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, to make in himself one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity in himself. Colossians 2.15 Having destroyed principalities and powers, he made an open show of them, triumphing over them through his cross. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through death, he has destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the accuser. And finally, Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. He has washed us from our sins in his own blood through the cross and has made us 
a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Five issues. Obviously, there are many more. But these five I want to look at in reference to how we are to operate in this in-between time between the, the cross and the end of the age. Number one, what does it mean that he has reconciled all things to himself? Well, let language speak for itself. He has reconciled everything that was unreconciled to him. Just let that sit on your head and soak into your heart and let the Holy Spirit speak to you whatever you need to hear from it. Number two, he has made of mankind one new man out of himself. He is called in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam, as opposed to the first Adam. All mankind came from the first Adam. Now he has become the last Adam. And in him, all things have been reconciled inside himself. Number three, he has taken away the right and power of principalities and powers and the devil himself to accuse and to prosecute and to kill and thereby to rule the earth with the misuse of the law. He's taken that away. Number four, he has destroyed the power of death. Number five, he has called believers to rule alongside him through the priestly power of intercessory prayer. Okay, people are still dying. People are still in bondage. People are still enslaved. People are still having all kinds of encounters with darkness. What is the answer? Well, Ephesians 3.10 again he has intended that through the church the many-sided wisdom of God be demonstrated to the principalities and powers in the heavenlies. It is the responsibility and task and privilege and joy of we, the people of God, to take the covenant relationship that we have in union with our sovereign head and wield that covenant power in the earth for the purpose of setting free all creation. That's what we're about. That's the meaning of this ongoing war we're in. This is why prayer this is why I've spent so much time in the last three, four, five, six weeks unpacking the real meaning of prayer. Now, in the time that we've got left in this session, I want to unpack for us some amazing truth in the book of Psalms. Psalm 110, Psalm 133, Psalm 2, Psalm 68 and Psalm 22. Now, don't just read along with me. I'm going to give you highlights from these psalms. But please take the time on your own to read and study and meditate on Psalm 110, Psalm 133, Psalm 2, Psalm 68, Psalm 22. You'll see why as we go. We've looked at this before, but I want to look at it obviously again. Psalm 110 is a picture of what happened when Jesus ascended back to his Father at the resurrection, where Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. By the way, this is the most commonly quoted verse in the New Testament from uh, the Scriptures. 
the Lord shall send the rod of his strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall make of themselves a freewill offering in the day you gather your army. In the beauty of holiness, from the womb of the morning, a young army like the dew arising. Now, I don't want to take the time to unpack this here, but this entire imagery of referring to the dew shining in Hebrew signifies a new generation of people who are birthed by God in order to bring life into the earth. And the idea seems to be not only to give life, but to do battle with whatever seeks to destroy life. And the poetic imagery here that we see in Psalm 110, which is also referred to in Psalm 133, are very closely related. Psalm 133 says, How good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard of Aaron's beard that went down to the skirt of his garments. Like the dew of Mount Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Most of us have heard sermons based on this psalm. And it always refers to unity and brotherhood and loving one another and being uh, in right relationship to each other. And that's, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's obviously more going on here than that. And when you take it and put it alongside Psalm 110, uh, they could certainly be read together. Let's, let's read through this one more time with keeping in mind the imagery of the dew on the mountains of Hermon and the dew of the mountains of Zion being an emerging generation of godly men and women who are set to bring forth life in the earth and to overturn death. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, till I make your enemies your footstool. How long is Jesus to remain seated upon the throne? Until he make, until his people make his enemies his footstool. Now, rather than comment too much on this, and rather than try to make a polemic out of it that would might that that might fly in the face of some people's in time scenarios. I, I don't really want to do that. I want to let the scriptures speak for themselves and let the Holy Spirit take you wherever he wants to take you. But if Jesus is to be seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies become his footstool, and the Lord says, I will send the rod of my strength out of Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the people of God. It is a symbolic image. It's not just a mountain. Uh, uh, In fact, Mount Zion is not really a mountain. It's a small area in in the the whole uh, scheme of the mountains of Israel, uh, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Mount Zion is the people of God. And so God will send forth the rod of his power out of Mount Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is not, this is not the Father speaking to Jesus to rule in the midst of his enemies. It's Jesus telling us to rule in the midst of our enemies. Your people shall make of themselves a free will offering in the day you gather your army. Well, he's gathering his army and telling them to rule in the midst of their enemies. How are they going to rule? By extending the rod of their authority. What is the rod of their authority? It is the name of Jesus. 
In the beauty of holiness, from the womb of the morning, a young army is rising like the dew. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in that army. It's like the precious anointing oil that came down the head of Aaron, down his beard and upon his garments. Like the dew on Mount Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. There the Lord commands a blessing, even life forevermore. It's not just a blessing. We have here a picture of a battle where the commander is commanding life to overcome death, and he's doing it through his people who are extending the rod of their authority out of Zion and ruling in the midst of their enemies. And that rod of authority is the name. Psalm 68. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Verse 4. Sing to God praises to his name. Extol him that rides upon the heavens. By the way, anytime you see a phrase that refers to God riding upon the heavens, it is a purposeful uh, reference to making fun of Baal. Baal was supposed to be the God who rode upon the heavens, and that's repeated over and over in worships of worship of Baal. Here we have uh, that being rebuked and made fun of in a a derisive, victorious way. Uh, God is the one who rides on the heavens, and uh, it's not the name of uh, of Baal that is exalted. He rides on the heavens. By his name, Yahweh. Yah is just a short, a shortened version for Yahweh. Who is a father of the fatherless, a protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. Then verse 14 and 15 makes a direct reference to Bashan. The Lord will dwell in Bashan forever. What, is, what does that mean? Well, he'll just dwell in Bashan forever. What does that mean? Verse 14, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll explain it. It's very important. Verse 18, he says, uh, You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts for men, even for the rebellious, also that the Lord might dwell among them. I will bring them again from Bashan and from the depths of the sea. You might recognize verse 18 as being quoted in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul uses it as a foundation for the, the fact that uh, Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, uh, led captivity captive, whatever that means, and uh, then turned around and given back to the people of the earth gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for the purpose of establishing the church, strengthening it so it can fulfill this destiny that I'm talking about here. But uh, he's quoting here from Psalm 68, uh, leading captivity captive. We, I don't know, it's one of those King James phrases that sounds so religious that we don't pay much attention to it. We just quote it. But it's very specific. It's talking about Jesus corralling the principalities and powers and leading them in a train of captivity behind his victorious chariot, so to speak. This is exactly what it's talking about in Colossians chapter 2 when it says he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in his cross. He made fools of them he destroyed them. He dragged them behind his chariot. Uh, if you'll read the entire chapter of Psalm 68, you'll get uh, more of the flavor of that. Now, in Psalm 2, which you're probably more familiar with, you have a, another picture of this battle that wraps up the end of the age. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and their rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Messiah 
saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that dwells in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak to them in his hot displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to to his son, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This picture of warfare taken from these verses, from Psalm 110, Psalm 68, Psalm 2, are are not fully understood without looking at one verse, among others, in Psalm 22. For it's in Psalm 22 that we have the key to understanding all these verses in Colossians, in Hebrews, and the ones in in, uh, Psalms that we just read. Psalm 22, as you know, is the psalm of the crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then the whole psalm lays out what happens in the crucifixion. And it says here, in the middle of Psalm 22, that the bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. On the cross, Jesus was surrounded by what he calls the bulls of Bashan. Now, I'm going to introduce this, and we will probably need to come back to it in a second session. But the bulls of Bashan, it's not some poetic reference to somebody's herd of uh, cattle that happened to be under the shadow of Mount Bashan. It's talking about powers of darkness. Why is it related to Bashan? Why is it related to Mount Hermon? Mount Hermon and Bashan closely related. Well, I'm going to I'm going to introduce this in the closing moments that we have together and then I'm going to come back to it Lord willing in our next session. But in Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 20, this famous story that most of all of you know, Jesus purposefully takes his disciples out of the normal route that they spend t- their time in and goes all the way north to the extreme northern location of Caesarea Philippi and sits with his disciples and asks them this famous question, who do people say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Or I love Luke's translation, you are Messiah God, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Very famous. We all know it, but we all don't know what we really need to know about it. This phrase, upon this rock, has been argued about down through church history. I want to tell you that Jesus is not referring either to Peter being the rock upon which the Roman Catholic Church would be built, nor is it referring to the Protestant confession that Jesus is the rock. No. Jesus is the rock, and the church is built on him. But that's not what this is talking about. This rock was the rock they were sitting on at the moment they were having this conversation. Why? Well, 
It has to do with why Jesus went all the way out of his way to go way to the north to Caesarea Philippi on the very border of Israel. This place had one long history of demonic worship. First, by Canaanite worshipers who worshipped Baal. Then later on, centuries later, by King Jeroboam who made it a place where bull idols were also worshipped for Baal. Now, as Jesus and his disciples sit in the very shadow of another demon worship shrine, this area was known as the Gate of Pan, or more commonly, in the Roman era, right outside Caesarea Philippi, it would have been commonly known as the Gates of Hell. Clearly, Jesus was demonstrating to his disciples that he was building his church with its foot on the throat of hell, and hell would not be able to stand against her. This was not at all about who gets to be pope or not. It was about the conquest and overthrow of hell by the church. Something we need to pay close attention to now and listen to so that we don't give in to the whiny, silly, uh, fright-filled behaviors of some well-meaning Christians who would have you think that things are just going to get darker and darker and the Antichrist is going to take over and we've got nowhere to go. The governing assembly of saints, the church, the ecclesia, are set to determine the outcomes of the events of earth that will eventuate in the final consummation of all history. It is not Washington or London or Moscow or Peking or Tehran or any other political capital that will make the final decisions. It is the church, not the church as we have erroneously come to think of it, that building down the corner that you've maybe had trouble with or they've had several fights or whose pastor ran off with the secretary. But yet inside that building, with all of its troubles, there might be a people who are truly a local and seemingly anonymous expression of the mighty army of God that is portrayed in Psalm 110 and Psalm 68 and Psalm 2. The governing body of the, of the planet earth. But in the spirit realm, they are not small and they are not anonymous. They may have squeaky boots and they may have voices that sing off key and they might drive an ugly truck and they might have a funny accent, but when they get on their knees, they look like the terrifying warrior beings that will destroy principalities and powers and bring them down off their thrones. Revelation chapter 8, verse 3 through 5. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having golden censer. And there was given to him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire off the altar, and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Father, I pray for all of us, every man and woman listening to my voice. No matter what circumstance we are in, no matter how painful our circumstance may be, no matter how alone we may feel, no matter if we're in a church that seems dead or a church that's alive and moving with the Spirit, if we are people called by your name, people who call upon your name, then we are this mighty army who make of ourselves a free will offering in this day in which you are gathering your troops for the final confrontation between light and dark. And so, Father, we present ourselves before you now 
and pray that you will cleanse us from any and everything that would hinder us from being faithful to this calling. And that regardless of the struggles of our own private lives and the issues that you know so well, because we tend to bring them to you over and over, regardless of those things, you who've begun a good work in us, you will finish it, and you will perfect all that which pertains to us. And and you will eventually present us faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. But until that day, we can still stand in the power of our union with our Lord Jesus Christ and in union with him As one new man, we extend the rod of his authority, which is his holy name, into the circumstances where our enemies are operating, and we will rule in the midst of our enemies. And so we say in his name to the principalities and powers of darkness, your time is running out and your rulership over North Korea is coming to an end. Your rulership in Russia is coming to an end. Your chokehold on Chicago and on Washington, D.C. and on any other city that you may live in or may, may have a burden for, those that chokehold is coming to an end. We say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be, be gone from your perch of authority that you have no right to dwell in, And we now take our authority in your place as the rightful dispensers of spiritual power in these areas. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will teach us how to pray this way. Because we are going to get to be partakers. Whether we live or whether we die, we will come back and rise from the dead and be partakers of this final great conflict, which is no conflict where you will bring the final end of the battle by the shining of your face and the glory of your presence. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. We glorify your name for it. We praise you and thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.